KPBS On Demand is supported by the University of San Diego, offering professional and continuing education courses in the areas of business, education, healthcare, and engineering. For enrollment opportunities, visit pce.sandiego.edu. Good morning. I'm Annika Colbert. It's Tuesday, July 27th. Advocates want city leaders to delay a vote on a surveillance technology contract. More on that next, but first, let's do the headlines. Starting August 2nd, California state workers will have a choice, get vaccinated for COVID-19 or get tested for the virus at least once a week. Governor Gavin Newsom announced the new requirements for California as the number of Delta variant cases continues to rise. 246,000 Californians are state employees. 246,000 Californians should be vaccinated. And if they're not vaccinated and cannot verify that they've been vaccinated, uh, we are requiring uh, that they get tested. The new health order will also apply to public and private health care settings starting on August 2nd. Dr. Jim Schultz is the chief medical officer at Neighborhood Healthcare. He thinks the new vaccine policy is important, especially for those in high-risk locations. Especially with this Delta variant, which is much more contagious than the other strains have been. It can really rip through uh, any sort of congregate setting. California is encouraging all local governments and other employers to adopt a similar protocol. The Dixie Fire burning in Butte and Plumas County has merged with the Fly Fire, tearing through the community of Indian Falls. So far, the blaze has burned more than 197,000 acres and is 22% contained. It's already leveled over a dozen homes and structures. Evacuation orders were issued in a number of small mountain communities. Officials say more than 10,000 homes are under threat. From KPBS, you're listening to San Diego News. Now, stay with me for more of the local news you need. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. The San Diego City Council is scheduled to vote today on extending a contract with a surveillance technology system called ShotSpotter. The police use ShotSpotter to detect and track gunshots in some of the city's neighborhoods. KPBS race and equity reporter Christina Kim says community advocates want city leaders to delay the vote. Since 2016, San Diego has used ShotSpotter audio sensors that cover 3.6 square miles in the predominantly black and Latino Southeast neighborhoods of Lincoln Park, Valencia Park, O'Farrell, and Skyline. 
Hamida Youssefi of the Partnership for the Advancement of New Americans, together with other coalition members from Trust SD, say there's not enough clear evidence the technology works as advertised. I think we need to have a more robust converse, conversation about um, is this actually curbing violence or not? Because what we've seen from investigative reporting is that it's not. According to the company, ShotSpotter audio sensors are attached to the top of buildings, electric poles, or light stops. When they hear a shot, they record it, timestamp it, locate it, and then send the data to an incident review center where people verify the sound is a gunshot before alerting the SDPD. City council members are set to decide whether to extend the city's contract for an additional year with the option of extending it another four years at a total price tag of around $1.1 million. Yusefi is concerned that the council will be making this decision without any of the measures that the council unanimously approved last November that set up regulatory practices for reviewing the city's use of surveillance technology. The reality is we're living in an even more technological world and we need to have a process in which the city is able to determine which kinds of surveillance technologies make sense and doesn't make sense. And ramming things like shot spotters through the process is not how we do that. That's not responsible governing. In June, the SDPD released new numbers showing a surge in gun violence. And in a July 1st letter to city council members, department officials wrote that the tool, quote, enables a new normal where police can provide a consistent, rapid and precise response, which will lead to increased community trust. Khaled Alexander of Pillars of the Community says the tool does the exact opposite and wants to see all shot spotters out of San Diego. We're perfectly capable of picking up a cell phone and calling 911 if needed. And so shot spotters are really just another excuse to kind of over police our neighborhoods to come in and, 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 and you know, pull people over um, and essentially, you know, uh, come into places where they haven't been uh, asked to come. And that reporting from KPBS Race and Equity reporter Christina Kim. The City Council will meet virtually today. The meeting is open to the public beginning at 11 a.m. It's been a deadly month for cyclists in San Diego County. KPBS Metro reporter Andrew Bowen says the recent spike in fatal crashes is prompting calls for local governments to move faster on safety improvements. She was uh, kind and brilliant and beautiful. Kristen Victor remembers her friend and colleague Laura Shin, a prominent local architect who was struck and killed by a driver last Tuesday while riding her bike up Pershing Drive in Balboa Park. Well, it's really close to home because we both advocated for um, a, a safer, more sustainable San Diego. It was just, it was in our hearts. Shin was one of five people who were killed while biking in San Diego County over the past month. Safe streets now! Safe streets now! Dozens of activists gathered near the crash site to call on San Diego Mayor Todd Gloria and other local leaders to build safe bike infrastructure with a greater sense of urgency. Plans to add protected bike lanes to Pershing Drive have been on the books for nearly a decade, but they've been repeatedly delayed, as have a host of other bike safety projects across the county. The choice to ride should not cost us our lives. This is the time for our government leaders to act quicker than ever before. The activists want Gloria to commit to building 25 miles of protected bike lanes in San Diego each year. Gloria's office says it's working on plans to build bike infrastructure more quickly, but the mayor has not yet committed to a timeline. 
And that was KPBS Metro reporter Andrew Bowen. A new rehabilitation hospital is now officially open in the North County. KPBS health reporter Matt Hoffman says everything inside and out was built with the idea of getting critically injured patients back into their homes. I'm going to toss you a ball. Okay. See if you can catch it. All right. You want to try it? Yeah. Okay. Nice work. All right. 77-year-old right. Doug Bailey is in the middle of a physical therapy session. He bounces a ball back and forth, then gets out of a wheelchair to walk around the gym. Around? Yep. Let's go kind of around the front of the car. Okay. After a horrible bike accident, which broke his neck and caused spinal cord damage, Bailey was transferred to the new Palomar Health Rehabilitation Institute. I'm lucky to be alive, actually. Could have been serious enough to stop my breathing. While Bailey's brain is working fine, he's having to relearn how to use it. Two weeks before being admitted to the Rehab Institute, he was wheelchair-bound. They taught me how to walk again, actually, and how to use new neural pathways. The, since the spinal cord is damaged, then what the brain, you know, my brain thinks I can get up and go for a little jog right now, but it doesn't work that way. With a few hours of physical therapy a day, Bailey says he feels himself getting stronger. I can tell I'm improving. My, my function in the fingertips, I couldn't, I couldn't do this before at all. And uh, so it's coming back faster than, not as fast as I'd like, but faster than, than anticipated. That's good. Okay. Your balance is getting better. Yeah. Bailey is also undergoing occupational therapy here. Putting on my clothes, bathing myself, uh, feeding myself, things like that. Most patients stay here for just under two weeks, but Bailey has a 30-day stay. And while he can walk again, the next part of his recovery will focus on refining his motor skills. Like right now, I, I don't even think I could sign my name to a piece of paper, but I think that'll improve a lot. The rehab facility is technically a hospital and also has a full apartment inside where patients can stay overnight just before being released back into their homes. What is your typical day like at home? Are you a golfer? Is that where we want to go with this? Um, are you a walker, a hiker? You know, what, what types of um, activities do you want to be able to tolerate when you go home? And that's sort of how we build that plan. Natalie Jermuska um, is CEO here, of the Rehab the Institute, region, which is a joint venture between Palomar Health and Kindred Hospital. There's definitely a need, especially in the North County. Um, for this type of care. And it's a separate entity from a normal acute care. So we have specialized equipment. We have special trained nursing staff. Some of that special equipment includes motion sensing technology, which can be used in games that help people regain balance and function. There's also a small car inside the gym that patients can practice getting in and out of. Our hospital's pretty much built for that rehabilitation patient. It doesn't have OB, it doesn't have ER. We're not competing for resources. Everything is built around rehabilitation. The 52-bed facility was licensed by the state in May and is only accepting Medicare patients, but that will change as operations are gradually scaled up over the next year. We would like to see, and what we've seen just with our small population is 84 to 90 percent of our patients go home. They don't need to go to a skilled level for further care. This unique facility generally treats patients who suffered strokes, amputations, and spinal cord damage. But I want you to not hold on if you don't have to. Okay. This is actually his first time walking without holding on to anything. Bailey's progress is remarkable. He's hoping to be at or Fantastic. near 100% function soon. Yep. Right now, he Good. still has to wear a brace around his body and neck. I'm hoping that as uh, my strength returns and my balance returns, 
that I won't have to wear as many braces anyway. Maybe not even a neck brace when I get out of here. I don't know. He says if you're coachable and with encouragement from staff, recovery is possible. But he's not sure what life will be like once he goes home. I think my bicycling days might be over just because uh, I'm my, my wife's primary caregiver. And uh, I don't want to jeopardize that any more than I have to. I want you to do it really safely. Slowly. Without touching anything. Try not to. If you have to, it's here. The Fallbrook resident is set to go home at the end of this month. Yes. Right. Yes. Nice work. Turn around for me. And that story from KPBS health reporter Matt Hoffman. Coming up. In some news stories, I think the narrative is, is skewed to where it was all for nothing. Was there a change that's going to be sustainable even after we're gone or not? It depends. President Biden's decision to end U.S. involvement in Afghanistan is raising some questions. That story next, just after the break. KPBS On Demand is supported by the University of San Diego, offering professional and continuing education courses in the areas of business, education, healthcare, and engineering. For enrollment opportunities, visit pce.sandiego.edu. President Biden's decision to end U.S. involvement in Afghanistan has raised questions about the wisdom of leaving and the wisdom of having stayed so long. But veterans who served in Afghanistan say the situation on the ground is hard to understand if you haven't been there. Anne Knigendorf reports for the American Homefront Project. Members of the Association of the United States Army are meeting for beer call on a hot, sunny rooftop bar in Overland Park, Kansas. Today, the lookout won't see trouble, only wide, tree-lined suburban streets punctuated by parking lots and businesses. <laughs> Emma Toops is a retired Army major who spent a year in Afghanistan in 5th Corps' operations center at the Kabul International Airport. She doesn't agree with the way the withdrawal is sometimes portrayed. In some news stories, I think the narrative is, is skewed to where it was all for nothing and that it was completely useless. It was a whole generation of 20 years gone and down the tubes. Was there a change that's going to be sustainable even after we're gone or not? It depends. She says the average American didn't see what she and her fellow service members saw. Things like 20 years worth of exposure to American values. So young Afghanis who weren't even born yet when it, when it all started, they're teenagers now. It's a different environment that, as far as what they grew up and were able to actually see and observe than their parents or grandparents. Toops says Americans introduced Afghans to the mindset of individual freedoms and self-advocacy. Elders remain society's policymakers, so some leaders may revert to old tribal thinking after the withdrawal. But she's hopeful about rising leaders who were only in their 20s when U.S. troops arrived. If they were in an area where there was exposure to this kind of thinking, new ways of thinking, new ways of governance, if they're in their 40s now and they are in leadership roles in their communities and they now have the ability to influence elders, because it's still elders even now that are going to be the ones with power, 
or the ability to influence change. Grant Montgomery organized combat operations in Bagram and Jalalabad. He doesn't want American troops to become a permanent fixture in Afghanistan. I think about Germany. We still have forces in Germany, and we have forces in lots of other places that are left over from things that, that maybe we don't need to, to be present in. Afghanistan has a turbulent history, first as a British colony and later as a target of Soviet invasions. It hadn't had a stable government since the 1970s. Veteran Scott Weaver spent three years at U.S. Central Command and worked on establishing the Afghan National Army. I would suggest to you that you go and look at what the British experience was in Afghanistan in the 19th century, and that you look at what the Soviet Union's experience was in Afghanistan in the 20th century, and then ask yourself, did you think it was going to turn out different? Weaver wouldn't directly say if he thought the withdrawal was premature or overdue. Still, he says, the past 20 years in Afghanistan are not lost. I'd say to any veteran who served there, be proud of what you accomplished, be proud of what you did, be proud of the difference that you tried to make, uh, and recognize that you did do good. Emma Toops reminds Americans that Afghanistan is a complicated place with vast regions isolated from each other. Though reports of pockets of unrest and regression are surfacing, she thinks many areas will stay the course set by the U.S. That was Ann Knigendorf reporting from Overland Park, Kansas. This story was produced by the American Homefront Project, a public media collaboration that reports on American military life and veterans. Funding comes from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. And that's it for our podcast today. The House Committee investigating the January 6th insurrection at the Capitol is set to hold its first hearing today. Only one Republican remains on the panel after tensions between party leaders in the House escalated last week. Join us on KPBS-FM this morning for live coverage of the opening session of the hearings, as well as expert analysis. I'm Annika Colbert. Thanks for listening, and have a great day. KPBS On Demand is supported by the University of San Diego, offering professional and continuing education courses in the areas of business, education, healthcare, and engineering. For enrollment opportunities, visit pce.sandiego.edu.